Am I on? Doesn't sound like it. Am I? All right. Excellent. Well, the Lord provided us with a nice, cool morning. You guys know that's right in my wheelhouse. You've got to keep in mind, the coldness preserves us. The Lord promised to preserve us. So he's given us a, a world of refrigeration this week. I noticed that it was 19 coming in. That seems like a pretty good number. As you know, I keep my house at about 56. So some people may claim that that is because I'm cheap. You could make that argument. And you could be right, too. But I'm Nordic at heart, so I get invigorated by that. But I'll tell you what I get more invigorated by. Praising the Almighty God as we just did. I hope and I pray and I know, because I could hear you singing, that that was reverberating from your soul. What a holy God that we have. And does that not drive us to want to know more about His Word, who He is, and what He expects from us? Because He's such a holy God, He calls us to the same. What a beautiful thing and what a great transition as we, as we consider his word today. We will be in Galatians chapter 5, as you know. So turn there, please, with me as I begin to kind of transition from, from our number one. And let me just say, our number one was a blessing to me and a conviction to me because God's word was articulated so clearly in how we serve and in, and in what way we should serve and the way we should view ourselves of God's kind of servant. I would encourage you, if you weren't here in hour one, to go back and listen to that this week when you get a second. Excellent teaching from the, the, the book of Philippians. And what I think is so amazing about this transition to Galatians is, as Pastor mentioned in, in hour one, is the focus on joy. Joy in spite of circumstances, but as we'll see in our text today, joy because, because of this holy God of ours. Joy because of that. But today we will be talking about walking by the Spirit. We'll be talking about the good fruit, really, is what it should be. The good fruit of, who, of, of what should come out of our lives as we are these good servants of the Lord and what that should look like to us. And so as we go forward today, this morning, that is, this is what we are, are looking at. A quick review from last week, just as a, a side note. I talked to my wife and I've talked to pastor, what can I do to really cinch this up? So we're not going all afternoon. And she said, well, maybe you could not review for 15 minutes. That might help. I said, that's a that's good call, wife. I think you've done well by giving me that good advice. So let me make this brief. If you were here last week, pastor wisely chose to look at our walk. And there were Seven different passages in particular that he looked at and the different elements. I'm sure many of you spoke of this in your small groups this week. And the focus on our walk rather than the obvious things of the flesh. Of course, those were, those were there. Those, those things that we see that, that are obvious, the ugly fruit. But what's God's call to us? And I want you to look at this last sentence. Paul's point to the believer is to walk in the light of this new life that we have, that we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we don't gratify the sins of the flesh. That's what we were hammered to or hammered into us last week. That's what we need to focus on this week. And so as we go forward, here's what we're going to do today in Galatians chapter 5, and, and we'll read through the text here in just a moment. But what walking in or by the Spirit, what the good fruit should look like. And you may be, may be thinking to yourself, much like I did, I'll confess, I've seen this passage so many times. The fruit of the Spirit, I have studied it all of my life. As a matter of fact, from childhood, 
Even as, even as we were reminded of that of Timothy this morning, from childhood, I was taught of the fruit of the Spirit. But just let me confess something to you. God just destroyed me this week as I studied this and realized just how deficient, how deficient I was in yielding to the Spirit in every element that is going to be brought up and highlighted by the Apostle Paul today. That I, I realized that there is an arrogance and a pride that we often have in our walk with Christ as we walk with him for a distance, that he has to humble us and say, no, 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 we're still working on this, aren't we? Um, my wife reminded me of an old song that, that comes up on our playlist every so, often, every so often. He's still working on me to make me what he, he, I ought to be. Yeah, took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, right? But he's working on me for a lifetime. And he's working on you for a lifetime. So that's what we're going to look at today. And um, this particular week, I had, to, I had to say some sorries this week to people. And for a, a variety of the different fruit that we see. Because you have to understand that he's still working on me. And he's still working on you. And there's times where we are, we are called to humble ourselves. And to proclaim his name, to do that properly, we need to be in the right state of mind and in the, in the right heart. But here's what it's going to look like today. And truth be told, we're going to combine a few things. Of course, we'll look at the fruit and we'll take some time on each one of those. But verses 24 and 25, what does that really mean to crucify the flesh and then live by the Spirit? They are one and the same. They go together. And that is a very unique way in which Paul uses that word. And then, once again, coming right back to it, a warning against pride and conceit, even when we may be doing that. Isn't that fascinating? But that's what we'll look at today. So go to Galatians chapter 5. If you're not there already, I've given you some time for that. It wasn't a 15-minute review, but it was, it was lengthy. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 26. The good fruit, or walking by the Spirit. And here's what it says. But the fruit of the Spirit, notice the contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And that's our text today. What we see here in this good fruit that we are focused on is that Christian character is not merely just some sort of moral dictate, some sort of rule that we follow. It isn't just being spiritually correct and checking a box. It's much more than that. It is the manifestation of, as, as you may remember me speaking of, of the graces, the gifts that God has given you to walk in Him and with Him in this life. Grace is so much more than pardon as we discussed a few weeks ago. Grace is allowing us to be more like Christ as we're transformed into his incredible likeness. And he only can do that when we're willing to surrender to him because he, he desires that we take part. He desires that we take part in this, that these manifested graces, verses 22 and 23, give us that very distinct list. If we take these together and, and we think of them as a moral portrait of who Jesus Christ is, it gives us the plumb line, doesn't it? It gives us that standard in which we can shoot for. Christ is it. And we look at it throughout the entire New Testament as we'll, as we'll see going forward. That this is throughout Scripture we see the Lord encouraging us, challenging us, and commanding us to allow Him to work through us. And the, here's the funny thing that I've mentioned before. It is fascinating that the God of the universe 
gives us even the right to resist him, and yet we do it, and yet he does. And so we take part in this understanding that we need to discipline ourselves. We need to, we need to surrender ourselves. We need to make our life forfeit. And we do this every day as Christ calls us to, to take up our cross daily and follow him. That is persecution. That is suffering. But that is the spiritual disciplines of listening to him and doing what he calls us to do. So that's what we're going to see today in this incredible passage as we go forward. The fruit of the Spirit, let us start here. Verse 22 and 23, I'll read it one more time as we go forward. But here's what it says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Pastor reminded us again in in week or hour number one that we need to recall that love wraps all of these things together. There is no law against it. As a matter of fact, Love, this, this sort of love that first comes from Christ to us and that we exhibit to others is what fulfills the law. Reminded of that in hour one, and we have seen this throughout both the text in Philippians and Galatians, haven't we? That that continues to tie things together, that we continue to see this as we go forward. Here's what MacArthur says about this. He says this about these fruit, this fruit, godly attitudes that characterize the lives of only those who belong to God by faith in Christ and possess the Spirit of God. I'm going to pause right in the middle of his, his quote here because it's important to note this. I don't know every one of your hearts. I don't understand for sure exactly, or I shouldn't say, I don't know for sure exactly who in here is redeemed. So let me just encourage you, today's your day. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if by grace through faith in Jesus alone you have not experience that transformed life in Christ. Today is your day. Today is the day that you understand that you're a sinner, that you're a sinner that is in desperate need of a Savior. And by the grace of God, he came. God in the flesh came. We are coming into a season where the entire world is going to have to consider that. The name of Jesus will come up in this season, maybe more than any other in our calendar year. And everyone will have to consider, what does that mean to me? So I'll challenge some of you here who maybe the Lord is drawing you to himself right now. And you need to consider, what do I think about him? What do I think about my sin? And do I understand truly that without him I'm nothing? I'm lost. So I'll challenge you with that because if you don't know him and you don't experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and he hasn't come in you and he's not doing these things, the rest of this just won't make any sense. And I'll tell you this, it will be impossible. Everything else I'll say going forward from this point, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you won't be able to accomplish. Even those of us who are in Christ struggle to do the things that God calls us to do. You have zero chance to do this without the incredible power of the Holy Spirit. So notice what he says next. You see why I paused. The Spirit produces fruit. You don't. I don't. He does. The perfect Trinity does. The Spirit produces fruit, which consists of nine characteristics or attitudes that are inextricably, nice nice word to start with, linked with each and are commanded of believers throughout the New Testament. Notice, we're linked to the Lord, but we're commanded to do this, which indicates that we don't always do that. We don't always do that. So what is this fruit that we're talking about? Well, here's our Greek word for this, this karpos. What does that mean? What does fruit mean? Well, it's funny. In the Bible, it can be used for vegetables and animals and things like this. But we know very clearly here, and we'll see from Christ's own words, that fruit here has to do with deeds, actions, the result of something 
profit or gain. That's what we're dealing with here from a spiritual perspective. And as I've already warned you, you have no capacity to do this, this type of fruit. You can't do this kind of fruit without God's power in your life. You can't do it. So here's where we need to start. I want you to turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And this is a challenging passage. It's not complicated, but it's challenging. And it will challenge those of you who are still struggling, maybe, possibly, thinking about your salvation. It will challenge those of you who are in Christ, and you don't want to be pruned. It's going to challenge some of you and realize that the pruning's not over. So John chapter 15. The upper room. We've been here many times. We will be here again today. The upper room is a humbling room to be in, and we need to transport ourselves there daily. The instructions that Christ gave his apostles on the night just before his crucifixion when he would, in the apex of history, take on the sins of all who would believe and take the wrath upon himself and be the propitiation and the atonement and pay the price for you, the words that he speaks to his apostles and extends to you 2,000 years later, we should sit up straight and pay attention to. And here's one of them. Chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. It's a good combination. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you... You are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch that with, and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. There is no better passage to start us into the fruit of the Spirit than this one. There is no better passage to get your mind in the right place because it encompasses so many aspects of human nature. We have, in this passage, those who do not believe at all. Those who have heard the gospel, those who have understood the gospel, but have not embraced the truth, and they haven't loved it and so, and, and to be saved. We have those who are, unfortunately, have a destination of, of hell and death and punishment. And it's there for them, but they're producing no fruit that would prove their salvation. And he is a, there's a warning to them. But there's also a warning to you who are in Christ. That he intends to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, but also notice the Father is the vine dresser, to refine you, to prune you, to work on you, to make you more like his son, to make you a better ambassador and a better servant, to humble you. And this happens for a lifetime. That this all is driven by, I want you to notice, agape, which we'll see first. All of this driven by God's love for us, our love for him, and our love for other people. What should drive you and I, as we think about this, is the desire to serve him and serve others. We heard that in hour one. That wasn't an accident. 
The Holy Spirit wants us to hear this. He clearly wanted me to hear it twice. That he desires for me to desire what God wants. To want what he wants and hate what he hates. And that's what he calls you to as well. We are unified in this. We're sanctified in his truth. Also in the upper room in John 17, just a few chapters away, he tells us that we're unified and we're sanctified in truth. That we are separate and different But this all comes from him, it flows from above, and then it needs to flow out of us. So as we consider this, and you just even consider these nine verses this week, which I would challenge you to reread that this week, as we consider this this message that he's giving to us in Galatians chapter 5, that I understand what Christ is doing. I could spend the entire day here, and I'm not going to do it, I'm disciplining myself. But this is what sets you up to understand Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 22. Without it, we don't understand it. And so that's what we need to consider as we go forward. We need to consider exactly what Christ has for us in this passage and what we should be doing with this as well. So going forward, just these are the nine that were referenced here. Here's what Christ wants to do through you. This is what the true vine wants to have come out of your life as you are a branch that is getting pruned and getting adjusted and getting morphed into that incredible likeness of Christ. These are the nine. This is what Christ wants out of you. This is what you should want from yourself. This is what God wants to do so that others can see it, so that others can hear the the good news, and that you can edify and encourage the ones around you. This is what it is. So we start with love. Here it is, agape. We've already seen it once or twice in the text that we've looked at. Agape is one of many words for love, as you know. But I want you to look at that definition. I have it up on the screen for you. You can see what it is. It's the highest form of love. It's respect, devotion, benevolence, goodwill, esteem, pure love, deep love. But here's what it's not. It's not emotional. There's emotion in it, of course. But it's not driven by emotion. It's not romantic. It's not just affection. It's not just physical. It's not those things. It's not just the the love you have for your family. No, 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 this one goes much deeper. This is the one that God uses about his love for you. You see, that makes it supernatural, doesn't it? That That makes this one eternal. We can achieve some of these other ones that we'll see occasionally in God's word that are a little lesser examples of love, but this one only comes from above. Notice Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his agape, his love, for us. This deep, devoted, internal, eternal, divine kind of love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, that was undeserved love, isn't it? That was love that you didn't earn and you couldn't possibly achieve it. It is unattainable by man, and yet God did that. That is beyond my understanding. I wish I could explain that to you, but I can't. I I still wonder why he saved me. Do you? Because if you don't, you might want to start over. (laughs) We might need to go back and rewind the tape because I don't know why he would do that for me. I'm unworthy of it. I found that all week. I'm unworthy of this. And notice this. If that's true, then there must be some change in us. This is the plumb line, as I mentioned earlier. This is the standard. Look at 1 John 3.16 on the same, same slide. By this we know the agape the love of God, that he laid down his life for us, started with him. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, that same sort of love. It's not in you without him. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does that God's agape, God's love, abide in him? It's a question John is trying to to have you ask yourself, isn't he? He's trying to make you consider your own heart and your own life. And by the way, that's what we should do every time we open up this book. 
What does this mean to me today? What does it mean to me this week? How do I put this into practice right now? That idea of what is God doing for us? Now, in order to do this, we have to consider back to my key verse here this week of John 15. God is going to prune you. God is going to work on you. God is going to do this driven by his love for you. Mindy, my wife, sent me this three months ago, and I just it, it resonated with me. And I know many of you know Elizabeth Elliot and her testimony, she and her husband, and what he went through in giving his life at a very young age, I believe in his 20s, early 20s. But this is what she says about God's love. It's much more than the salvation we just talked about. It goes beyond that. It goes into what John is talking about in First uh, John three sixteen and 17. Look at this. Great quote by her. Our vision is so limited, we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. We think that's what it is, but that's not it. The love of God did not protect his own son. He will not necessarily protect us, not from anything it takes to make us like his son. Let me repeat that one. Okay? He will not protect us necessarily from anything that, that, takes, that it takes to make us like his son. A lot of hammering and chiseling and purifying, we'll say pruning, based on John 15, by fire will have to go into the process. That's the love of God in your life. You're going to go through the ringer, and he loves you, and that's why. He's going to put you through hardships, and he loves you, that's why. He's going to make you go through trials. He's going to allow you to go through persecution because he loves you and he loves the people around you and he knows the impact that that's going to have on your life and the life of others. What a great idea and understanding of God's love. We want to make it something it's not. God's love is beyond us. It's beyond our understanding, but we know it's manifested in this, as we saw in John 15. And it goes beyond that, too. You don't have to turn here, but I've got it up on the screen. Pastor even referenced this this morning in Romans 13. 8 through 10, he says this, and I, I had this up on the screen a few weeks ago. Owe no one anything except to love each other. That's what you owe them. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We heard this earlier. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, in case those aren't good enough for you, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Hmm. Have you done that this week? Every time? Every second, every moment with everybody, me either, but that comes from above and he's working on us and chiseling us and making us what he wants us to be. So that love that God has for us, that he wants us to have the better perspective on, that needs to then flow to others. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, you knew I would have to come here, you knew I would have to, and I want you to think about this, okay? This is coming off of, in the verses just prior to this, you know this passage, where you're doing all kinds of things to serve the Lord, but without love. Much like we heard in hour one, too. Why you do what you do may be for the wrong reasons. If you're even doing it in the name of Christ, but it's really your name in your background, it's really your name in your heart, your glory, your kingdom, then he says, yeah, you're doing all these amazing things, but what about this? Here's what love looks like. Once again, I'll challenge you as I challenge myself. Is this what my love looks like? It only looks like this when I'm letting the Lord work through me. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. One more time. Can you understand why I say, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you have no capacity for this? 
Even those of us who are in Christ, boy, my flesh wants to keep coming back. I, I, I had a desire, and I had to take it out of here, to go to Romans chapter 7 and look at Paul's struggle, that the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I do want to do, I just don't do. And what a wretched man am I. But we have the capacity, because the Holy Spirit has the, the power, to be able to do this, to be able to understand that even though we don't have it in ourselves, we have it from above, and he's calling us to this, something much higher. Going back to last week, we, we walk in these things. We make that decision each day to walk in these things. So that's love. That's clearly what love looks like in a biblical sense. What's the next one? Well, that's joy. Let's take a look at this one very closely. So love comes from above and it needs to extend to others. I love the passage that I'm going to use here that Peter gives us because it's inexpressible joy. What kind of joy is that? That chara type of joy? Delight, gladness, a source of joy, an eternal happiness. Notice that one, an eternal happiness. I don't even like the word happiness, but that's what the definition was in the dictionary for, for this Greek because it's not sufficient. Happiness is temporary. Joy is eternal. That's what we're dealing with here. But because of the lack of the structure of our English language, that's what we have that's based on divine promises of Christ and the eternal spiritual realities of the believers. The things we know to be true because we have a promise-keeping God. Those things. Look at what Peter says. Just love this. And notice, once again, contextually here, verse 6 tells us, it may be for a little while, if necessary, you're going to have to go through some trial, some difficulty. Peter knows all about this. Spent a lifetime doing this. Difficult circumstances. So here's what he says in verse 7. So that the tested genuineness, the difficulty, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in what? Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice the context and how this is going to lead us to joy. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you don't, know, you don't now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with what? Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Where does soul, the joy, originate? It, it originates in the soul and it originates there because of the hope that you have. Implanted in you when righteousness was implanted in you when Christ saved you from your sins. The hope of eternity, the understanding that the struggle that we're in will someday come to an end. The sin nature that you currently have and I have someday will not, no longer be a burden. That the, that the pain and the sting and the, the terribleness of sin, the penalty of it will be eradicated in your life and mine. That brings me joy. The fact that this life, that I've, as I walk it, I realize I'm not from here more and more every day. Do you not, believer? That you realize this is not my home every day I walk in it, that I realize more and more that this is, this is not who I am and this isn't what I want to be around, that there is going to be a day when all is made new, when faith becomes sight. That's where our joy is. It is centered in Christ. It is centered in who he is. Joy originates with Christ and his work in your life. Here's what Paul Washer says. And you'll notice I kind of Got a picture of Paul Washer looking desperate because that's how he preaches the whole time, which I appreciate. There were some nice ones where he was smiling. Like, that's not what he preaches like. He's like this. And I kind of feel that way sometimes too. But notice what he says about this, and then we'll follow up with the passage he's referencing. Notice what he says. Joy comes before obedience. Understand this. Listen carefully to what he's saying. Rather than after. And if you don't understand that, you'll be messed up all your days. Hmm. Joy is not the result of obedience. Joy is the result of what God has done. 
It starts there. Remember what he's done. So now your joy is fixed on a solid and stable source. When your joy is based on your performance, it's going to be up and down like the wind. Knowledge about God and what he has done, coupled with faith in Christ's finished work, is the true formula for joy. There it is. There it is. That's what it's about. And he's referencing this, Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 11. Joy because of him, which then leads to obedience. This is what he's talking about. And so, Paul says, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It all comes from God's word, understanding it. You can't understand it without the Holy Spirit. He is imparting this to you. He's he's helping you to see it, transforming you, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, much like we heard last week, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit. Notice that connection. Bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That continues in being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Because as we walk with the Lord, our joy is non-circumstantial because it's fixed and it's solid with what happened at the cross and what happened to you. If you're in Christ, what Christ did to you doesn't change anything about the circumstances around all the time. Certainly you could go through hardships. But what is fixed is the eternity that you have, what you are now in with Christ, who you now are with Christ. That's fixed. That's never going to change. He's got you. He's holding you. And no one can snatch you out of his hand. Beautiful. And the apostles understood this very briefly. You know this. Acts chapter 5. They take a beating for the Lord. Arrested. Rearrested. Threatened. Don't do this. By the men who crucified Christ just a few months before. And notice their reaction. Notice what they do. Verse 41, they left the presence of the council after taking this beating, rejoicing, joy, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They didn't get their joy because they obeyed. They got their joy because they know who their risen Savior is. And it didn't matter what happened after that. Joy was uncircumstantial. Their joy was founded in their risen Christ that they knew for sure. And they are extending that to us. And what do they do? Now obedience happens. Look at verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching that Jesus was the Christ, or Christ is Jesus. Amazing, right? That's us. Paul and Silas, we heard the Paul and Timothy referenced in Acts chapter 16. See the same thing in Philippi when they're imprisoned. Singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs all night long. Proclaiming the name of Christ in the face of persecution. That's joy It's not about obedience, it's about your Savior. Next, peace. Let's look at this. Eirene, peace. This is kind of the Greek equivalent of what we see in shalom in the Hebrew. Kind of. Wouldn't say it's exactly the same. They don't use it exactly. But it is the Greek equivalent of that same word. What is that? A a rest, a peace of mind, a, a common peace. Sometimes used as a Jewish farewell in the Greek, sometimes not health, welfare of the individual. But look at that second point. It's an inner calm. It's an inner calm that results from confidence in one's saving relationship with Christ. That peace that comes from above that goes through you. I don't want to look at this entire passage, but I want to point out a few things. Very common. Anxiety is common in our world today. We live in an age of mental health problems and different issues that are going on. And I see this a lot with my teenagers. A lot in my school. That this is, they can't get beyond their self. It's a selfie age that we're living in. And we have a formula for this. 
Here's what God calls us to do. We're not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. And don't forget the thanksgiving as we go into this season. We're thankful to the Lord of of creation. Let your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now notice what he does in the rest of this passage. You read it for yourself. I won't read it out, out loud. We set our minds on things that are above We set our minds on things that are eternal. We start thinking about things that are commendable and perfect and righteous. And where do you find those things? How do you do that? Well, you pick this up and you begin to read it. And you begin to read it diligently. And you pray to the Lord that he helps you understand it. And then you begin to apply it. That's what it means to think about things above. That's what it means to think about things that are pure. And then look at how this ends. Look at how it ends in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and then the God of peace will be with you. See, peace comes when you do what he says. There is no greater place to be, no more satisfying and complete place to be than smack dab in accomplishing God's will. And you won't know that unless you're in his word where his will is found. You won't know it. And we put it into practice. That's peace, and that's what it looks like. Let's move on to patience. You know, I have to go quickly through these. There's so many. When we think of this, makrothromie, that's patience, patience, endurance, constant, that constant attitude, that steadfastness. Some would call it long-tempered, perseverance, forbearance, long-suffering. I'm none of these things. I am, from the very first one, I say, I'm not long-suffering, and I'm not patient, and I, I'm quick. I, I can see that this is something I struggle with, that there is this, this burning inside of you that you want things right now. We live in that sort of society, that you don't want to wait, that you don't want to be patient. I can feel that in myself. This is a struggle. And what does Paul say? Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 2. This is back to the walk. We heard this last week as well. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with humility and gentleness, with patience. Now, those two words come first on purpose. We're going to get to those two. But humility and gentleness come first on purpose. This is the outgoing of the product of humility and gentleness. Patience is. When you focus on being humble before the Lord and gentle with those around you, and boy, do I struggle with this. I do struggle with this. I'm real good about the passion behind the gospel. That one comes naturally to me. But the the gentleness, that's a hard one. The kindness, that's a tough one. The patience, that's a tough one. These three are all connected together. This is the outgoing of those two things. And then we bear with one another in love. This all wraps back up to round to love. To be patient with one another is a challenge, such a challenge. It's even difficult to be patient with people who are non-believers, who you know desperately need the gospel, but they're resisting you. And we, we've got to show them the love of Christ. I'm, I'm preaching to myself as I'm preaching to you. You've got to show them the gentleness and respect. We know that that's exactly what Peter challenges us to do in the, the great apology passage. That we do this with gentleness and respect. We make a defense for the faith with gentleness and respect. What a challenge. You can be loud and brash. You can be determined and right. And you could be absolutely truthfully right and still not get across to them if you don't have the love of Christ. And this is I'm preaching to myself. You don't have the love of Christ coming out of you. That's patience. Kindness, the next one on the list. Christotas. Here's what it says. Moral goodness, integrity, excellence, uprightness, kindness, and gentleness. This is Titus 3, 3 through 5. I think it's up there. I might. Yep, Titus 3, 3 through 5. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions, passing our days in the malice and envy, hatred by others, and hated, hating one another. Sure sounds like the sins of the flesh we looked at last week. 
Sure sounds like the things that are obvious, that are what our world looks like, but notice this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. One more time we see this coming from above so that we can let that come out of us. This comes from above. Kindness and goodness come from above. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He saved us. He did this. He did this in us. And this one, this one was tough for me this week. Notice this. Even sometimes where you've got you've to talk to somebody, you've got you to work something out. You've got you to maybe, you maybe have a tough conversation with somebody. Notice what God calls us to do as his servants. This is exactly what we heard in, week, in, in hour one. You're servants of the Almighty God. Look at what he says. And as the Lord's servant should be up here for you, and we are his servant if we're saved, what do we got to do? We can't be quarrelsome, but we got to teach patiently, enduring everyone with kindness and able to correct our opponents with gentleness. We deal with people with kindness, kind to everyone, believers, non-believers alike. That's tough. Boy, that's tough. And it, by the way, it doesn't say if they're kind to you first. It doesn't say that. I kind of wish it had, but it doesn't say that. It says kind to everyone. I'm trying to think of a time where people were just super kind to Christ and then he saved them. That they were perfectly righteous and then he saved them. Now that's counter to the scripture, isn't it? In spite of our sin, while we were lost, when we were his enemy, he saved us. He loved us. His goodness and loving kindness from above came down to us. That's what we're called to. Whew, that's a challenge. In goodness, we just saw this again. Titus 3 also mentions this. We just heard it. But what is goodness? I go through a This is what it means to do good, intrinsically goodness, especially in a personal quality, kindly rather than righteous. It's a side of goodness that comes from above. Let us not grow weary in doing this kind of good, the good that comes from above, the good that only comes from above through the Holy Spirit working in us. For in due season we'll reap if we don't give up. So then as we have an opportunity, notice again, let us do good. Let's do good this thing that is from above, to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith, to the non-believer and the believer alike. It's not easy on either case to do good, the loving kindness that is unconditional, much like Christ showed to us. That's the goodness. Let's move on to faithfulness. Faithfulness. Well, this one's tough. Belief, trust, confidence, fidelity, loyalty. This is certainly what God has shown to us. We just sang it last week. We're going to sing it again this week. This incredible hymn, this incredible truth that came from Lamentations. And I want you to consider this. This is the the faithfulness of our God. This is after the Babylonian captivity. This is after the city was ransacked. This is after the, the people as a whole rejected the one true God and wouldn't listen to the prophets, wouldn't listen to the warnings, wouldn't listen to Jeremiah as he pleaded with them. And yet... This is what he writes in lieu of this, in the wake of this. Look at what he says. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, and they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Notice it doesn't say ours. His faithfulness. That's what he's dealing with. And now, what does that look like? Jesus is faithful. We need to be faithful. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 1 Thessalonians 5, that may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. This is the promise that we have. He calls us to act that way too. To walk in this faithfulness, you need to be faithful to him because he is holding you to the end. And let's continue through this. Gentleness. Mm, Gentleness. 
proyutas, mildness, emphasizing the divine origin of meekness. We're going to talk about that. Meekness is not weakness, folks. It is a gentle strength. I've got a fantastic quote from Vodi Bakum coming up here, but I don't want you to think of it as weak. It is not weak. Our Savior was described as meek. Would you think he's weak? There's no one stronger. There's no greater example of a strong, powerful man than Jesus Christ, the God-man. And he's described as meek. So I want you to be careful with this passage and not consider it and think about what it isn't. Okay? It expresses its power with reserve and gentleness. Interesting, right? That's what we see out of this passage. James 1 tells us very briefly, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, received with meekness the implanted word of God. It starts with you humbling yourself before the, the mighty hand of God and the word that he has given to you to listen to, learn from, and put into practice. It has to start there. If you want to be a man of gentleness and meekness, you've got to be a man of the word. If you want to be a, a, a woman of meekness and gentleness and kindness to others, you got to start by being a woman of the Word. That's what it has to start with. That's where it has to be. That's what we do. We are holy as He is holy. That's what we're called to. And as we look forward just very quickly and we see some of these passages, in your hearts honor Christ as holy. That's what we do. Being prepared to make a defense, as I referenced earlier, but with gentleness and respect. That's how we do this, with gentleness and respect. Galatians 6.1, we see very similar type passage here. When we look at this one, brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, what do you do? How do you handle that? We see somebody in sin even, and they're wrong. And you know that God's God's word is telling them the opposite of what they're doing. Well, how do you handle that? With aggression? That's my tendency. But no, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Boy, that's tough. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And here's this great quote. And this, this also kind of harkens back to some of the some of the others that I've heard, uh, that gentleness or meekness is velvet steel. You heard that before? Velvet steel. Vody puts it this way. Gentleness is not a lack of strength. Gentleness is strength under control. Power under control. Power reserved. Power that is distributed properly and correctly. And notice, I want you to notice where I picked this up from. Notice this, the name of this book. What he must be if he wants to marry my daughter. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that that's the way we need to look at things. Am I the sort of man, am I the sort of woman that is, that is the right sort of man or woman that would be married by a God-honoring person? Yeah, that's, that's the way we should look at it. Okay, so that's what we see out of this. We see this very clearly. And then finally, self-control. Self-control. We think of self-control, that's a tough one because it's kind of the encompassing of all of these, right? This incrate. Mastery, self-mastery, self-restraint, continence, restraining one's passions, dominion within, proceeding out from with oneself, but not by oneself. Let me repeat that last piece. Proceeding out from within oneself, but not by oneself. I tell my students this all the time. We stress self-control, but for a believer, it's really not that at all. Self-control for the believer is spirit control. We yield. We give up our lives daily. It was just on a test in, in my apologetics class that what we're called to do that will, that will help us have a better mindset when persecution comes our way is that our lives are considered forfeit, right? We surrender. We lose our lives if we want to find it according to Christ's own words, that if you want to find it, you lose it. 
That's not easy, but our control, our true control, is when we let him take control. There's a lot of misunderstanding of, of what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't happen by some magical interaction that, well, today I could be, but tomorrow I can't be. No, being filled with the Holy Spirit, he's already there. It's just you let him have it. You give up what all these passions and desires and selfishness and pride that you have, that we all have, and you surrender those and you let him to control you to make the decisions that are honoring to his word. It's not magical. The magic happened. The supernatural event happened when you put your faith in Christ. You can't get any more of the Holy Spirit inside of you. You just yield more of what you're holding back from him. That's what we do. So notice what Paul says here as we continue through this. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's not talking about losing his salvation. He's talking about losing his opportunity to proclaim the gospel because he wasn't under control and he wasn't under spirit control. He'll contrast letting the Holy Spirit filling you with drunkenness. And we know what that looks like. Drunkenness allows you to to embrace the flesh more. You're uninhibited, they say. That's not what we want because we know what our flesh is. I know what my heart looks like. I know what it looks like, and you do too. I know what that is. No, we want to let him take control. That's the contrast. That's what it looks like. So that I can continue to preach his name. Not disqualified from salvation, disqualified from being the ambassador I'm supposed to be. So that he can continue to make his, his, his plea to the sinful world to, to make it through me. I want him to make it through me. Now let's move on. Verse 24 and 25. Let's look at this. Crucifying the flesh and walking by the Spirit. Here's what it says in the text. Here's what it says. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us walk with the Spirit as you might have in the NASB. Let's walk with it. Let's walk in it. Okay? And this is the the way we look at it. And this is a good spot where I could have had Romans 7 in there where Paul struggles. But we're not going to look at that. Let's take a look at what this means. What are we supposed to do? Nobody puts it better, in my opinion, than John Piper when it comes to this. Crucifying the flesh, making a decision on the day-to-day basis of what we should do with our own sin. Don't play around with it. Don't deny it. Don't say it's okay. Here's what he says. What a great way to remember what we're supposed to do. Here's what he says to do. I'll read this. I hear so many Christians murmuring about their imperfections and their failures. Your sins. And their addictions and their shortcomings. Yeah, got all those. And I see so little war. I see so little war. He said, what are you talking about? They murmur and say, why am I this way? They shouldn't murmur. They shouldn't say anything. They should make war. If you wonder how to make war, go to the manual. Go to the Bible. Study it. Don't I just, and then it says, don't just bellyache about your failures. Make war on your sin. Make war on it. Every day you look at this and you say, I know I failed at this yesterday, but today I'm giving this to the Lord. I'm going to let him work through me. I know that this, this fruit of the Spirit, this one, it wasn't coming out of me the way it should have been. I'm making war with that because I know the Holy Spirit wants me to do better. I know that the will of God is for me to, to manifest him to the world in a more clear way. Less of me, more of him. I decrease, he increases. You make war with the sin that is in your life. Romans 7, look at it this week. Paul understood it. We have to understand it. We go to war with our sin. 
This is not to earn salvation. That was one at the cross. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. But our day-to-day living has so much to do with how much we surrender and how much we decide our sin is detestable. I hate what he hates, and I love what he loves. Make that decision each day. That's what we're called to. That's what, we, what we're called to. And then a, a transition into that of what, what living in the Spirit is actually like. We make war with our sin. We crucify the flesh. We understand that it's despicable in my sight because it's despicable in his. That he left the glories of eternity to satisfy the wrath that was coming because of my sin. Not everybody else's, mine. I take it personal. But then I say, okay, what am I going to do? But I say, walk by the Spirit. Pastor spent some time on this last week in verse 16 in Galatians 5. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. There's your formula. You get to the Word of God, the Holy Spirit's going to tell you what to do, and you allow Him to do it through you. You want to fight this flesh of yours? You want to go to war with it? Don't murmur. Don't talk about it. Don't just keep saying the same things. Make a change in your life and start studying this Word and discipline yourself to do it. That's what I was challenged with this week. I fail at this so often. And yet, God's saying, no, no, I, I still got plans. I'm still working on you things I want you to do. Yeah, it's going to take a lifetime, but we're still working on this, Marshall. Keep going forward. Here's what he says in Romans 8. What a great passage. So then, brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, you go to war with those, the deeds of the body, you'll live. Not talking about salvation. That's settled. Now, living for Christ now, a life more abundantly now, so that I can be the ambassador I'm called to be now. And then this leads us into this. Well, what about that pride? That's what it all comes down to, right? A warning against pride and conceit in Galatians chapter 5. What walking in the Spirit should look like, it's a lack of pride. Day to day, dying to self, dying to ego, dying to me. And here's what he says. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We need to not do that. In the NASB it says, don't become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. Wanting what they got, wanting in that position. Pastor talked about how we serve and the heart in which we serve, and only God knows that, of course, and you. But there are times where we're like not satisfied with what God has given us and how He wants us to serve, and and we may maybe want to take some of His glory from away from Him, and and that can cause some division within the church and some pride and conceit. It sure can in my life. It certainly can. And I want you to turn to Luke nine as we finish. Go to Luke chapter nine as I land this plane. Luke chapter 9. What a challenge Christ has given us. We're, we're capping this beginning and end with Jesus' words. Seems like a pretty good thing to do, don't you think? Luke chapter 9, verse 46. I said this in the elder meeting the other day or somewhere. I say a lot of things a lot of times, so it's hard for me to remember where I say everything. <laughs> but I occasionally, maybe it was in small group, but I, 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 I sinfully am sometimes, uh, I don't know, comforted by the fact that heroes of the faith also struggle. And it's kind of an ironic thing to say because you shouldn't find comfort in other people's sin. Okay? However, <laughs> I do find myself saying, yeah, I'm like that too. And they were like that. And these apostles were sinners just like me. The, the prophets were sinners just like me. David was a sinner just like me. Job was a sinner just like me. I find myself in that position. So don't misunderstand me by saying this, but the apostles struggled with this too. You should be there by now. Luke chapter 9, verse 46. Here's what it says. They had a question. 
that they wanted that was in their heart. Who's the greatest? It's like little Muhammad Ali's 2,000 years ago. An argument arose them as to which one of them was the greatest. Wow. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Well, we got to flip the script in our human worldly minds as to what greatness really is. Greatness isn't you and it isn't me. It isn't in our ability to do anything. It's not in our accomplishments. It's not in the position that we have or the respect that we get from man. It's just not. Greatness is humility. Greatness is Christ. Greatness is Christ working through me and I get to tell him how great it was to walk with him when I face him someday. Greatness is seeing the incredible love and compassion and goodness, all of the things we've talked about that flow from above and realizing he lets me be a part. That's greatness. It's not me and it's not my talent. It's not my ability. It's not my strength. It's not that at all. Look at what Bonhoeffer says about this. Oh my, this will get you. This pride, this conceit that can come up amongst believers, all this, speaking of this passage, can occur in the most respectable or even most pious forms. But it is really important for a Christian community to know that somewhere in it, there will certainly be an argument among the disciples as to which one of them is the greatest. It's going to happen. Don't let it happen here. It is the struggle of natural human beings to self-justification. They find it only by comparing themselves with others, by condemning and judging others. Self-justification and judging belong together in the same way that justification by grace and serving belong together. Guess which one we should pick? This one. This comes from above. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift from God. Not by works, lest any man should boast. And what will that result in your life? That's going to result of you serving the people around you with the love of Jesus Christ, with gentleness, respect, with love, with kindness, because you know you're not better than them and you're not great. He's great and you want them to see it and you want them to help others see it because we're all in it to the, together. And boy, I'll tell you what, he went through the ringer and he still understands this. It's God Almighty that's great and we have this incredible opportunity to show that to the people around us, to love them uh, like no one else can, like Jesus can. And what a calling that is for us to put the fruit of the Spirit in action in our lives this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as, as we conclude this passage, we understand how important it is for us to, to live lives that are worthy of the calling, but you've called the, us to live different than the world, and we can't do it alone. We, we, we can't do it at all. We don't just need your help. We're desperate for you to do this. We can't do any of these things. So we ask for that to, this week, not help, empowerment, we ask that we yield. I pray that each heart here has, has learned that uh, we have to have less of us and more of you. And as we transition here in, in just a moment into this, this very sacred time where we're called to remember what you did, I pray that maybe more than any moment this morning that we empty ourselves, that we confess to you our shortcomings, that with thanksgiving we cry out to you and remember what you did for us 2,000 years ago that resonates throughout history today. That we recall just how fallen we are. 
And this incredible reminder from your word today that because of the cross, we now can live with victory today and be a part of this kingdom that is all yours. We love you, Lord, and I thank you for the time we are about to go through. Pray that you'll soften hearts and calm us, prepare us, uh, that your Holy Spirit would move in each one of us that are in Christ, and that we prepare ourselves for this sacred time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And Pastor Kevin is going to come and